Hello, Falaba, you've tuned into Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, or Loingo, or Susana Suisuiki. Coming up. The security priority of Australia and the AUKUS partners is different from our priority. Just when Pacific leaders were reassured on the AUKUS deal, others are condemning it. Also, it hit early in the morning about 4 a.m. That's when we suffered the most damage. An earthquake that struck the East Sepik province in PNG kills eight people. And later on, we have a really big and bright feature ahead of us. Students at Macaulay High School in South Auckland are encouraged to dream big. An independent group of prominent Pacific leaders has condemned the AUKUS security pact, saying it goes against the spirit of the Blue Pacific. The deal between Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom will see Canberra forking out billions of dollars over the next 30 years to acquire a fleet of nuclear submarines. The Pacific Islanders' voice is accusing Australia of deliberately exploiting a loophole in the Pacific Nuclear Free Treaty it is party to, which permits the transit of nuclear-powered craft such as submarines. A spokesperson for the group, former Kiribati President Anote Tong, says it's also disappointing, as a member of the Pacific Islands Forum, that Australia would commit such a staggering amount of money to militarisation when it's a signatory to the 2050 Strategy for the Blue Pacific which is a strategy that identifies the climate crisis as the region's single greatest security threat. He spoke with Koroi Hawkins. Well, um, I think you know that uh, as a region in the Pacific, uh, we've always been saying loud and clear that uh, the greatest challenge to our security has been climate change. It's always been at the top of the agenda. And of course, um, you know, that has never really attracted a lot of support, including from Australia in the past. And so this sudden change of uh, gear and with a, a commitment of over $300 billion to uh, a project uh, which is part of the August agreement, it's, uh, you know, it, uh, it seems to speak very loudly that um, the security priority of Australia and the AUKUS partners is different from our priority. We also have the uh, uh, existing arrangements in the region with respect to the, the nuclear, okay, because we've had about Many of our member countries have had uh, very bad experiences with nuclear testing in the past. Now, we're seeing um, after following this announcement, um, uh, Australia's Prime Minister stopped over in Fiji and quickly made assurances to uh, Sidivini Rambuka in Fiji about the the AUKUS deal not breaching the Treaty of Rarotonga. We had uh, Mark Brown, the Forum Chair and PM of Cook Islands, who said initially um, in the Cook Islands that he thought this would be going against the principles of the Treaty of Rarotonga, but then later backtracking on that, having gone to Washington and saying they've reassured him that it hasn't. What's your thought on the the messaging and the, I guess I wouldn't say advocacy, but the, the, the moves to reassure Pacific leaders from Australia, uh, from the U.S. about the deal not breaching the Treaty of Rarotonga? Well, I think this is precisely the point. I think it's the, it speaks to the lack of consultation at, at the early stages. I mean, the consultation now are taking place. But um, if that had taken place before all of this had happened, I think it would have removed all of these concerns. And I think, I'm sure, if we all understood what it involves, I'm sure uh, if, if Pacific leaders were happy with it and the region feel that there is no threat to the existing arrangement, that the security, uh, what they are being focused upon is not, uh, is not being challenged, then uh, 
I'm sure we would have nothing, no opposition to what's going on, but it's the consultative process that's been lacking. Your, your statement says you're urging Pacific Island leaders to take a decisive and ethical stand on this important matter and not to be subsumed by the rhetoric from the AUKUS nations. What, what do you mean by this? What's the call here for our Pacific Island leaders today? Well, it's, um, again, it's a question of priorities. Um, our priority has always been a peaceful uh, Pacific. Our priority has been to step up to the challenge of climate change, which, uh, which is an existential threat for most of our countries in the region. It's about survival. And so there's got to be a stepping up. And I think uh, if, if, um, if the focus continues to be at the military, at a strategic level, then th- that would uh, uh, redirect attention away from what is and remains our biggest threat. Now, um, the Pacific Islands Forum leaders are meeting later this year. What, what role do you think the Pacific Islands Forum as a regional body also plays in terms of having Australia around the table and, and advocating and speaking to them later this year for the leaders? Well, Australia is a part of the Pacific family. And I think Australia has, has got to step up as a part of the Pacific family. And so that is precisely the kind of consultation process that needs to happen all the time. All the time, any time that a major decision like this is taken, I think it is important to be a part of it, that everybody becomes a part of it. I think we've known what's happened in the past when uh, others of uh, some countries have been felt left out and so we get a fragmentation we don't want to repeat it just recalling on that point obviously when the solomon islands um struck up a security deal with china australia and new zealand and and a lot of uh foreign partners were quite concerned about there being no consultation about that maybe uh, are you saying that that could play into into uh sort of i, I guess uh, walking the talk is i guess what i'm trying to get at here well absolutely i think it's got to be uh uh, every way process, not just a one-way process. I think um, as all parties to, uh, after all, we have we all have an interest in what goes on in our region, in our blue Pacific. Okay, and so let's all be part of it. Let's uh, let's not do something on the side and then which will affect the blue Pacific uh, agenda. And uh, hope that it's uh, you know we're just picking something that is of interest to us, but maybe detrimental to the interest of others. And I think it is important that consultation process is very healthy, very robust. Now, um, um, New Zealand isn't yet a member of AUKUS, but we've had um, questions put to New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand government in uh, recent weeks, and they've said that while they've sort of ruled out nuclear-powered submarines being party to other aspects of the AUKUS deal, uh, sounded like something that they were considering. What is your, your message to New Zealand who's considering or on the fence in terms of whether it should sign up to AUKUS as well in some capacity? Well, I, I think New Zealand is taking a very rational uh, stand. I think New Zealand is examining the, uh, the arrangement in detail and picking parts of it, which uh, are not in conflict with the existing arrangement and are not in conflict with the uh, our vision of a, a peaceful Pacific. And so I, I think maybe... There needs to be more clarity, there needs to be more consultation, there needs to be more information on what, what's being planned, all of uh, the different aspects of it, so that we can all understand it and come to terms with it and accept it. Or maybe pick up the pieces like New Zealand is doing. The Pacific Elders' Voice is an independent group of prominent regional leaders, which includes former presidents and prime ministers. Eight people were killed and 17 people were medevaced to hospital. 
after a magnitude 7 earthquake struck Papua New Guinea's East Sepik province. The earthquake hit just after 4 a.m. on Monday last week. The cost of the rebuild is expected to be around half a million US dollars. Caleb Fotheringham spoke with East Sepik Governor Alan Bird. The seriousness of the situation occurred right at, you know, uh, when the earthquake hit. And it hit early in the morning about 4 a.m. That's when we suffered the most damage and had people injured and we lost about eight lives. But after that, the aftershocks, they weren't big enough to cause any further damage. People are beginning to rebuild and we're helping them with that. How bad was the initial damage to people's homes? In that part of Papua New Guinea, most of the homes are made from bush materials and the damage occurred mostly within the wetland areas. That's where the significant damage occurred. In fact, the epicenter was in the wetland. So a lot of people uh, built their homes either inside the swampy areas, like actually on the water, and the area where the most significant number of houses went down. I think more than 30% of the homes or 40% of the homes that collapsed was in this particular area called Karawari. And in Karawari, they actually build their homes on peat. And peat is not very, it's not a very stable material, but they've actually built their homes on that for generations. And that's where the biggest damage occurred. I think almost 300 homes collapsed in that particular area. Wow. So what are those people doing in the meantime? They're beginning to rebuild, and so that's what we're helping them with. Because the homes are obviously made of bush material, so they're fairly recyclable and it's not difficult to rebuild. So we have to help them with basic tools, nails, tarpaulins, water containers, obviously everything they've got got destroyed when their homes collapsed. Clothing, uh, mosquito nets, fishing nets, sanitation things for, for women and girls, that sort of thing. That's what we're trying to get to them now so they can help rebuild their homes, rebuild their lives. Uh, you know, clothing, bedding, the, the very basic things, the pots and pans. Right. And do these people have somewhere to stay in the meantime while their homes get rebuilt? Well, we didn't get like whole villages destroyed. In one particular village, you might get, say, there's 20 homes there. You might get, say, half of them destroyed and the other half is still there. And they're fairly isolated. So what happens is all the families will then move in together into the homes that are there within the community. And they build pretty big homes. In one home, you could have up to 10 families living together in one home, normally anyway, because it's a, we're fairly communal people. So that's what's happened. Uh, they've taken people in. And what about injuries? Were there a few people injured after the earthquakes? Yes, we had 17 people with serious injuries. We've got a flying ambulance service that brought them all into UN, and they're being treated, and they've recovered pretty well. In terms of the cost of rebuilding, do you have any idea of how much it will cost? We think if we're spending about 1,000 kina per affected family, 1,000 kina is probably around 400 New Zealand dollars, I'm guessing. So we think that's how much it's going to cost to re-equip a family so they can, uh, you know, get back to normal. And then perhaps another 1,000 kina for logistics and other things to sort of get the help out there uh, because these places are really far-flung and isolated and you'll need a helicopter to reach them or, you know, you need to go by road and then by speedboat. 
along the wetland areas. We're, we're thinking in the vicinity of around 2 million kina. And just so I get an idea, 2 million kina, how much would that be in US dollars? Probably around, I'd say, half a million, 300,000 US dollars. It seems like for an earthquake of that size, it's not a, I don't want to downplay it, but it doesn't seem like a, a, a colossal amount of money. Is that because of the type of buildings that people have? Yeah, people live fairly simple lives. It's, it's not like in a heavily populated area where you've got high-rise buildings with people living on top of one another, crumbling concrete and things like that. We felt we were lucky. The loss of lives, we expected them to be a lot higher. And it was only eight, which, you know, is obviously sad. You don't want to lose anyone. But I guess from a response standpoint, we were fairly relieved that it wasn't worse. Macaulay High School in Auckland, New Zealand received a motivational visit from politician Jenny Salesa and three civil friends players. The predominantly Pacifica all-girls secondary school welcomed the role models who encouraged the girls to pursue their dreams and to not be wavered by any discrimination they may face in their career pathways. Fino Funua has more. Last week, Macaulay High School held an event highlighting a recently released employment research report by New Zealand think tank Talbot Mills Research, revealing Pacifica employees are more ambitious and satisfied with their career paths than their predecessors. The ANZ Bank-sponsored report called Watch Wahine Win says 55% of Pacifica millennials reported being optimistic about advancing in their careers, a positive difference compared to 27% in a previous report. ANZ Bank CEO Antonia Watson says the report identified discrimination as a continuing barrier to Pacifica and Māori. So people have um, absolutely experienced racism in their roles, which is probably not a surprise, but but sad and something that we need to address. And everyone realises now the importance of diversity, the importance that our institutions and our employers look like the communities and the customers they serve. Watson says the report helps support employers by identifying cultural differences so as to create a more inclusive workplace. She says traditional values about family were stronger among Pacifica and Māori. But we also found other things like, you know, motivation is, is, is more about family for Māori and Pacifica women in particular than maybe their, their work roles. So that's something that us as employers have to need to be able to figure out how to address. Speakers at the event included MP Jenny Salesa and three Pacifica Silver Fern netball players. During the Q&A session, they were asked about their experiences with discrimination. Celessa says she used her negative experiences to fuel her determination to succeed. When I entered university, people were saying to me, to my face, that it was unrealistic for me to get into law school because I was born and raised in Tonga, did all my education in Tonga, so kind of how dare you think that you can make it into law school here? Because you have to get an A minus average to get into law intermediate to then get that average to get into actual law school. So the discrimination I faced from Pacific people too, um, I then used it as a motivator because in my head, I didn't say this out loud, but in my head, whenever that happened to me, I would say in my own head, I will prove you wrong. 
Silver Fern and Cook Islander Mila Rowello Buchanan says being marginalized and stereotyped is an ongoing experience endured by many Pacifica in New Zealand. She encouraged students to find strength in their culture and identity. I just kind of reiterated um, that being brown is, is my strength, um, and I think you know people see it as a disadvantage, and I guess you know you're stereotyped. Um, but for me, that's actually been my biggest motivator. So. Um, it's really cool to be here in front of other brown wahine and hopefully kind of inspire them to, to, be, to be someone and to, and to be happy. For generations, Macaulay High School has played a key role in educating and paving the careers of many prominent Pacifica women. With a school roll of just under 800 students, 94% are Pacifica. Macaulay Deputy Principal Vanessa Lange says the purpose of the event is to inspire up-and-coming Pacifica leaders. They're thinking about the workforce, leadership, and what it takes to get ahead in their, in their field, the barriers that they may face as well. Um, so yeah, I, I guess they wanted to partner with Macaulay because Macaulay sort of got that reputation, eh? Like it, it just breeds brown female leaders. This was a sentiment shared by the school's head prefect, Faressa Nuelevaya, who says she and her fellow students felt uplifted knowing their career pathways are not barricaded by discrimination. This event was very informative. Um, I'm sure a lot of our girls are really grateful for the opportunity to hear about um, this, the Watch Wahine report. Um, and they were all really motivated by all all the the wise words that everyone said, how we're all um, of Pacifica, all ethnic background, and that we have a really big and bright future ahead of us. The New Zealand government currently boasts its largest presence of Pacifica MPs, with 11 of Pacifica heritage, including Deputy Prime Minister Kamel Sepuloni. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team that made this episode the best one yet, to Fasui 4.